Welcome to New Human Living Radio Show, bringing you powerful interviews to awaken the power in you. Learn more at newhumanliving.com. And now your host, Les Jensen. Hello and welcome to the show. I think we have a delightful episode tonight. I'm very excited. The topic tonight is Real Magic, and our guest is Dean Radin. Real Magic is the name of Dean's latest book, published earlier this year. You know, it's a curious thing when we talk about um, consciousness on the show, which we've done so often, um, but consciousness is kind of like, metaphorically, you could think of it as like electricity, in that you can't see consciousness, you can't have a cup of it that you carry around, you can't see electricity either, but with electricity, we've made computers and communication satellites and motors and elevators and electric cars and an industrial force that's quite remarkable. And yet, electricity existed for so many years undis- unrecognized. And I think consciousness is going to be a game changer in this in the next couple of decades with our our human paradigm, our our unfolding mythology, if you will. And that's why I like so much about our topic tonight. Um, Dean has written a book, um, Real Magic, Ancient Wisdom, Modern Science, and a Guide to the Secret Power of the Universe. That's the name of the book. What if magic were real? Not magic like a Hogwarts letter arriving in the mail or some um, showbiz magic of Houdini, but real magic, a genuine but hidden power that resides within each individual, a power tied to our consciousness, a power that makes phenomena like telepathy, clairvoyance, precognition, and psychokinesis not only possible, but inevitable. I'm reading from Dean Radin's website. According to Dean, who is the chief scientist at the Institute of Noetic Sciences and best-selling author, he's also the featured scientist in the New York Times Magazine, magic is real. And science is on its way to understanding it. With Dean's new book, Real Magic, from Harmony Books, Dean paves the road to new scientific horizons, arguing that magic is a natural aspect of reality that everyone is capable of tapping into with diligent practice. I love that conversation, and let's go ahead and proceed with that. Um, I'd like to welcome you to the show, Dean. Thanks for being with us. Thanks very much for inviting me. So... The topic of your new book, Real Magic, I mean, you're taking this straight on. Is is magic really real? Well, I think it is. And as you pointed out in the, the beginning blurb, I'm not talking about Harry Potter or Harry Houdini. I'm talking about the real deal. So to better understand that, I need to define what I mean by magic I mean, if you look at the esoteric traditions, either in the East or in the West, they 
they basically are, the, those traditions are a kind of cosmology, a way of understanding our place in reality, universe. So the, to contrast it against the, the modern scientific worldview, in modern science, or actually from science almost from the very beginning, a couple hundred years ago, the worldview was that everything is ultimately made out of matter and energy. Originally just matter, but then after Einstein, matter and energy. And that is what most scientists are taught. That's what most of them believe. And that's what most of our technologies have been based on. So it's a very successful way of viewing reality. And we can't simply throw it away. But when faced with certain kinds of anomalies, like telepathy, uh, it, it fails. The scientific worldview does not work very well when we try to understand how it is that people can perceive through space and time or sense another person's thoughts. And we know that those phenomena, psychic phenomena, we know they're real because the very same science that has given rise to our technologies has also been applied to studying things like telepathy and precognition. And we can do it in the laboratory under very controlled conditions, and we see that those phenomena are really real. So we're faced with a paradox. We have a scientific worldview that does not account for psychic phenomena. And, of course, all psychic phenomena are telling us something about the nature of consciousness. The nature of consciousness is another giant mystery within science. Uh, science today, from a materialistic point of view, has no idea what consciousness is. By consciousness, I mean awareness, an internal sense of experience. We don't know where that would come from based on just matter or energy. So I looked at the esoteric worldview as a, a place to look for a clue as to what people had believed for about 10,000 years, not just the last three or four hundred and the esoteric worldview can be boiled down into three words. And those words are, consciousness is fundamental. This is what you get from virtually all of the mystics, uh, all of the psychics throughout history, all of the uh, people who have taught in mystery schools, much of which is based on the use of psychedelics to achieve altered states of consciousness. And when you, you begin to look at this notion of consciousness as fundamental, what it means is that consciousness is more fundamental than the physical world. It's from that perspective, the physical world as we experience it, including all of our physics and everything above physics, it is emerging out of consciousness. That's what you find if you, if you look at uh, Neoplatonism or Hermeticism or the Kabbalah or Rosicrucian uh, lore or the Freemasons, and on and on and on. All, all of those are part of this esoteric tradition, and they all basically say the same thing. The physical world arises out of consciousness. So I thought, well, should we not, should we not pay attention to that? 10,000 years of, of ways of thinking about the world that are quite different than what we currently know. And it's very difficult then to, to simply toss it aside. But on the other hand, as I already mentioned, we know that the scientific worldview works really well. We have all these technologies that are based on it. So part of the challenge then in, in writing this book was to figure out a way 
of keeping science the way it currently is, because it demonstrably works, but also incorporating this esoteric worldview. And in order to explain how it got to that point, magic comes into play because technology, as we know it today, technology is to science or the scientific worldview as magic is to the esoteric worldview. Magic is a kind of technology of consciousness. And so the magical practices uh, can be looked at. And again, you can do a synthesis across 10,000 years of, of uh, lore, and magic falls into three categories. There's divination, which is like tarot cards or gazing at a crystal ball. We have force of will, which is your intention manifesting things in the world or, or changing events in the world. And then a third category called theurgy, which is associated with ceremonial magic and has to do with communicating with spirits or asking spirits to do something on your behalf. So those are the three categories of, of genuine real magic that have been practiced for millennia, including to the present day. Today, we don't often, unless we're a member of a coven or something, we wouldn't see ceremonial magic unless you happen to be Catholic and watch the uh, the ceremony of the Eucharist. So that ceremony is about transubstantiation, and it is explicitly a magical practice, the changing of one substance into another. So there, there are still many aspects of the modern world where you can go see magic happening, or at least claims that it's happening, and it, it can be traced, these ideas can be traced back, as I said, all the way to shamanism. So the reason why uh, I was particularly interested in these ancient magical practices is because divination means to perceive through space and time. Well, that is exactly what we've been studying in the laboratory for 150 years. Uh, we call it clairvoyance and precognition, are ways of perceiving through space and time. And as I point out in the book, there's now a lot of science that, that can be brought to bear on whether or not those phenomena are real. And the answer is yes, they are real. We can, we can show that in the laboratory. That means that one of the magical practices, namely divination, is also real. By the same token, you can, you can do the same argument for a force of will which in a laboratory we call psychokinesis, or a form of mind-matter interaction, which is studied by looking at the role of intention and the behavior of everything from bacteria to water to small animals to human beings uh, to electronic circuits, so all kinds of things. When you look at the, the overall range of studies that have been done to look at force of will, it turns out that that's true as well. In the third category of theurgy, the best we can do from a scientific perspective is to look at phenomena like mediumship. These are psychics who who talk to or can perceive deceased people. So we can, in the laboratory, we can verify that a medium can gain accurate information from a client or from a from a deceased person, supposedly. Uh, we can't tell that there's actually a deceased person there. All we know is that the information that they say they're getting from the deceased person is correct. And it's correct and not obtained in, uh, in a mundane way. 
it's obtained in some other way. And we can study things like near-death experiences and out-of-body experiences, channeling, and so on. So there's a, a little less certainty from a scientific perspective about theurgy, but at least about uh, divination and force of will, we have high scientific confidence that these are real phenomena, uh, in which case some of the lore about magic is actually true. And that's what then gives rise to this idea of real magic. The, the other idea I had then in, in writing this was to say that real magic, the, the acceptance of real magic, or even the consideration of it, is not a throwback to medieval times. It's not pushing us backwards. I believe it's actually pushing us forwards. That science is slowly gaining the competence to be able to look at phenomena that have been around for forever and be just on the cusp of being, being able to understand what they are. When we actually understand it, uh, it will no longer be called magic because we use magic as kind of a synonym for we don't know what it is, but it's something. So we'll come up with new terms. I like the term psychophysics because the, all of the phenomena we're talking about are strange because they live somewhere between physics and the psyche. They're somewhere between the material world and the world of the mind. It's right smack in the middle. And that's the, the strange nature of these phenomena. And as I said, we don't really have a good name for it yet. Uh, but I think we eventually will. So I have a chapter on the history of the esoteric tradition so that people can come up to speed on uh, where does this fit within history uh, and a chapter on the scientific evidence and a chapter on why I think this is the future of science and so on. So that's that's kind of a, a bit of a riff on how that book came to be. Well, you know, if if we went back a couple of hundred years with the technology we have now and uh you know, you can imagine some scene in an old western uh, town and you pull out your cell phone and you call somebody up and you talk to them. That would be such a surreal experience because there'd be nothing in the in the um, local um, paradigm that even came close to it. But in in this paradigm, in this time, we understand RF where we can make these carriers and, and transmit information through the air. And we've done that uh, um, extensively. When you look at um, psychophysics, do you think it's time to talk about new spectrums of uh, reality, so to speak? Well, yes. It, it's difficult to, to talk about where we're going because, of, of as you mentioned, uh, if you gave somebody a cell phone 100 years ago, not only would they see it as magic, that you can talk in this little box to somebody who's on the other side of the planet, but they wouldn't even know how to begin to understand it. Even if they took, a, took it apart and had a microscope and were studying it, they still wouldn't understand it. They don't have the concepts. Right. So we, we're faced with something like that. We're talking about a technology of consciousness, and we have no idea what consciousness is, other than we seem to have it. It seems to, uh, in virtually all of the esoteric traditions, what we hear again and again is that 
the universe is consciousness. That's what it is. And so you have a piece of the universe inside of you, the thing that you call me. That, that spark of sentience is the same thing as the universe itself, which just using those words, it sounds ridiculous to say such a thing. But that's the story you get again and again and again from people who are just as smart as we are throughout history. So if it wasn't for the fact that we're able to verify that some of the psychic phenomena are actually true, then we probably could just dismiss all of that lore as folklore, as stories that people told each other because they didn't know any better. But the fact that we can verify that things like telepathy and psychokinesis and so on, that those are real, it forces us to actually pay much more attention to what these ancient practices tell us about the nature of consciousness. And and to build that out into a, a practical model, so to speak, um, like if we were to do the same with cell phones, we'd talk about RF energy and propagation and modulation and whatnot. To to build out the the um the mechanics of of this new modality, if you will, of magic is I mean it it it's quite a uh, a task from I mean if you if you think about the the scientific method, I mean to have a discernment of what's happening, even though you don't have a measuring stick outside of of people's experiences or or whatnot. I mean, if you can't even measure it, in other words, if two people are are, are having a telekinetic connection and there's no scientific um, measuring stick of that. It 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 really makes a challenge for it to to quantify a model that that even begins to describe how I mean what is the 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 modality of of how these various uh, magical attributes actually happen. So I I can imagine that's uh, a very challenging and uh um i I'm so delighted people like you are up to the task how do you how do you um bring new models into something so intangible well, one of the approaches that that I've taken in a previous book called Entangled Minds is to look at how our conception of the physical world has changed from classical physics to quantum physics. And so there are there are clues, I think, that are available in quantum physics because it radically changes our notion of what we think physical reality actually is. It, it's no longer about matter and energy. It's all about information and relationships. And so I, I talk about this in Real Magic, uh, where the reason why I think that magic and consciousness are the future of science is because if you look at the thought leaders in physics, uh, in information theory, in mathematics, and even in consciousness, you find people at the top of their game, mainstream scientists, talking about reality as information 
or reality as mathematics or reality as symbols, symbolism, this is much, much closer to the idea of what, what will eventually become a technology or mechanism of consciousness and its direct center for what we think of as real magic. Because if, if you look at books of magical spells, grimoires, they're called, they're basically recipes for ways of directing your attention and your intention. And so one of the, the clues that we get from the magical practices is that consciousness seems to be something like a, uh, a sentient substance that can turn into the physical world as we experience it. It's not quite physical yet, but it's a highly reactive substance that can be directed with intention and is reactive to attention. So you can begin to, to see how the notion of reality as information is awfully close to the notion of reality as a symbolic or relational system, which sounds a lot to me at least about what what is it that the mind does. Well, it processes information. The other thing that the, at least the brain does is it generates the world as we see it. We know this is true just from perceptual psychology, that what you're looking at when you open your eyes and perceive the world is not the world as it is. It's a stopped-down version of all of the sensory information that you're, you're getting. That to just give, I mean, besides all of the examples of uh, visual illusions and the, the uh, methods that are used in stage magic to make the illusions work on stage, uh, those are easy ways of showing that what you see with your eyes is not necessarily what is there. Your brain is basically constructing a reality all the time. The other way, though, is that if you, uh, if you look at somebody's eyes very closely, you'll see that they're always kind of shuddering. They're moving around all the time because if, you, if your eyeball was very still, after a few seconds, you wouldn't see anything at all. The brain operates by taking differences. It requires differences in incoming uh, sensory information in order to construct an image. So if we were seeing the world the way that you're, even that your eye is looking at it, what you would see is a world that's constantly shuddering, moving around all the time, because that's what your eye is doing. And yet, that's not what we see. We see a very stable reality out there. We look at objects and we immediately have names for those objects. But what we're seeing then is uh, the estimate I saw recently was what you get to your conscious awareness is approximately one trillionth of the amount of information that is actually impinging on you at any given time. So the brain acts as a stop-down transformer, kind of, uh, where you're seeing this very small trickle of, of information that, that is creating a stable reality for us. So imagine that if you were able to access a little bit more of that information. If we're only getting a trillionth of it, there's an awful lot of remaining information that we're not seeing or paying attention to at all. Well, a case can be made that if you are able to open the doors of perception, as uh, the famous book said, or book title, uh, if you're able to open the doors of perception, you would perceive reality a bit closer to the way it actually is. The reason we don't see it generally is because it would be overwhelming. That you, you would get so much information about so many things 
that you may not pay attention to the, the hole in the ground in front of you and you'd fall in it and you'd die. So evolution seems to have shaped us in a way so that our brains and nervous systems and our sensory apparatus are exquisitely sensitive for the here and now. It's like within arm's reach and in the present time. But that's actually not the only thing that's here. There's also information, as we know from quantum mechanics, uh, that things are connected. And they're not only connected at a distance, they're connected through time. And in fact, the connections, as best as we can tell today, are, don't even exist in space-time. They exist outside of space-time. So if you use the lens of quantum mechanics and what it's trying to tell us about the nature of reality, you can see that uh, psychic phenomena, mystical experience, magic, that whole domain of, of, uh, of history begins to make a lot more sense from a, a quantum reality than it did from a classical physics reality. In fact, from a classical physical reality, all of these types of phenomena were completely impossible. That's why today you, you will still hear some physicists say that, well, things something like telepathy or precognition is impossible, literally impossible, because it's not accounted for by our physics equations. It's like our physics doesn't accommodate it. Well, it's not true, as I point out in great gory detail in my book, Entangled Minds, uh, but this is what people have been taught, and that's what they believe, and they're, I guess they're welcome to that belief. It just happens to not be true. So in trying to come up with a technology of consciousness, I think at this point the best we can do is say that at least what we're talking about is consistent and compatible with what we know about physics. But physics, just like every area of science that we know, we are a young species on a young planet and a young part of the universe. So it's not too surprising that we're, we're just now getting to the point where we're recognizing that consciousness is an incredible power, in a sense. It's the power that creates the universe. And the fact that we don't understand it very well yet, well, it's not too surprising given that we're consciousness trying to understand itself. And it's very difficult when you are the thing that you're trying to study. It's like you're trying to look at your own eye without a mirror. It's it's difficult, maybe even impossible, logically. Uh, but if you have the right instrument, like a mirror, well, then you can study your eye. So part of the, the work that I'm doing and my colleagues are doing are creating new and better instruments to be able to understand the nature of consciousness so that we can slowly bring it into uh, what we think of as science, although the science that will be necessary to study consciousness is not going to look like the science we have today. It, it'll be new methods, new instruments, new epistemologies, all kinds of new things. Well, you've been doing this for a while now. Um, your book, The Conscious Universe, came out in 1997, I believe. Mm -hmm. How has the... Um, academic community embrace this type of um, material over time. Do you see a change, in other words, as to how open-minded perhaps the academic community is towards these things? Well, one way of answering that is to say that all of all of my popular books are still in print, and they're still selling. So somebody's buying it. 
Uh, second way of responding is uh, to say uh, places that I know that have bought the book or people who have bought the book, uh, which I, I've learned sometimes long after the fact. And uh, one example is Casper uh, Weinberger, who was uh, Secretary of State uh, for the United States, among other things. Uh, somebody went to an estate sale from Weinberger and bought some books and found in the conscious universe his book plate. So he sent me the book. So I, I know that there are many people in in academia, in government, in the military, in the intelligence world who have bought my books and still do because we're talking about common human experiences. And it's not that unusual, but it's for the general population, it's a little unusual to know that there are scientists who are trying to understand the nature of these phenomena. So people in government, even at the various highest levels, are human. They have these experiences, and they're curious like anybody else. So what science can bring to this study is uh, perhaps a slightly higher credibility about uh is this a real thing, and if so, how do we even begin to understand it? Uh, so that's why I think that this is still, from a mainstream perspective, both in the media and and in the academic world, both are very, very slow-moving. They, they, I mean, especially journalists like to pride themselves on how skeptical they are. Uh, and the academic world is similar. That they, The last thing in the world that an academic wants to do is be fooled. So... There's an enormous amount of private interest. There's relatively small amount of public interest, at least within the United States. So the U.S. is peculiar in this sense because I've given invited presentations at the very highest levels of the academic world and government in countries around the world, but not in the United States. So we, our culture is, is peculiar in many ways, and at least in this domain, it, it manifests by having a very strong private interest, but not public interest, except by, except by the way, for things like uh, TV reality shows on ghost busting, then that's okay. But, but for serious science in this domain, extremely unusual to, to get invitations to talk in serious, what's considered to be serious academic or scientific um, venues. Uh, to give an example, about three weeks ago, I was in Germany giving a talk for the pharmaceutical company Merck. So Merck had a special international science conference in celebration of their 350th anniversary as a company. There are very few companies that last 350 years. So they had this big worldwide international science festival. They invited 35 speakers, including five Nobel laureates, and me. So I'm not considered by any stretch of the imagination that I'm a prominent scientist and certainly not a Nobel laureate. So why was I invited into that group? And the answer is that Merck, as it is one of these very long-term companies, the secret to their success which is not a secret really, is that they have put innovation and, and, and creativity at the very center of their research and development. And, and it's not just 
it's not just talking about it, but they actually have a whole division of innovation. And what that means is in, in order to be innovative, to truly be innovative, unlike the way that the word is used in a lot of uh, foundations around the world who are always calling for innovation but actually not that interested in it. To be truly innovative means you really you have to push yourself outside of the box. You have to recognize that you're in a box and then work to get out of it. And so the kind of research that I do and, and my colleagues do around the world is has recognized the box that we're in. I call it the scientific worldview. Uh, and when once you step outside of the box, you realize that that is one way, a very successful way, but just one way of actually perceiving reality. And there are other ways that may be just as valid. So I talked about magic at this international science uh, conference. And the room was standing room only. Spoke to a lot of people afterwards. They were just fascinated by it. So in a, a company and in countries that value creativity and value uh, true innovation, they find this stuff fascinating. So, as I said, I've talked to academics and in industry and government around the world, but not the United States. So, the, <laughs> privately in the United States is another matter. So, you can I can do these kinds of talks if it is uh, if it's private. And so, in the U.S., I've given talks. Uh, I actually hosted a conference for the National Academy of Sciences, but only because it was completely confidential. So, as I said, there's something strange about the United States when it comes to this topic. Well, it sounds like there's a shadow side to it where there's there's that hesitation. Um, well, that's, that's very curious. So... Um, if you were to look at our unfolding mythology, um, has magic become more um, embraced by a larger and larger group of people? How do you see our culture changing as a result of that? Well, that's an excellent question. And, and actually, I think that's one of the reasons why progress in this field is slow, because for many people, they're, they're fascinated by the experience itself. Like if someone has, has had a, a case of uh, crisis telepathy, which is that they're just going about their daily business and they suddenly get a hit that some loved one is in trouble. It's very common. And then especially when they learn uh, moments later through a phone call or something that indeed they were correct, their emotional hit was correct. And, of course, they, once they have that kind of experience, they're no longer quite so skeptical about it because you can't deny your own experience. What they want to know is, well, how did this happen? What does it mean about me? What, and a lot of questions that come about. But one of the other things that happens is there's a certain rush of fear that happens because we live our daily lives with the idea that our minds are our own. We have a sense of sovereignty about our privacy and our, our, our person. That's why people get so upset when they hear that something like Facebook is selling your private information. Everyone gets up in an uproar about it. But psychic phenomena tells us that our sense of self is not unique to us. Our thoughts, our behavior, uh, our, our, even our sense of awareness 
are distributed in some way and can be uh, affected by others. So this starts to sound very close to what drives a person crazy and is then labeled as schizophrenic because they're, they're, what they present to a psychiatrist is, I hear voices, I feel compelled to do certain things, I want it to stop. And yet, in some cases, there probably is a brain problem. In some cases, though, they may be just an uncontrolled psychic. Like they're completely wide open, and they are, in fact, hearing thoughts of others, feeling compulsions that are actually the, the uh, pushing, some intention pushing by other people. And, of course, they would want it to stop because it's, it's uh, horrifying. So people who start thinking about telepathy as real generally don't like it very much. They don't want people to, to see what their hidden secrets are. Uh, nor do they like clairvoyance because then it opens the possibility that uh, somebody could see you a thousand miles away in the bathroom. Well, nobody likes that idea either. And on and on. All of these phenomena that we're talking about uh, when somebody considers it as real, and this has nothing to do with the prohibitions from religious uh, sources, which have usually labeled these things as demonic, uh, this simply has to do with uh, your sense of personal sovereignty. So that's one thing that society has to get over, that there really is no privacy. I mean, even from a, just a general surveillance perspective now, Anything you do on the computer, anything you do on your phone, anything you do basically walking around in public is potentially being observed. Surveillance is everywhere. So forget about privacy. That doesn't exist. But then we have to then get used to that and then take the next step. And basically say you could be under surveillance from a thousand miles away by somebody who happens to be really good at clairvoyance or What's going on inside your head is not a secret. It's something which is basically out there for somebody who's sensitive enough to pick it up. We need to get to the, a point, a kind of maturity, individually and collectively, to say, well, I don't have anything to hide, so I don't care if I'm being surveilled in that sense. That's not who, who we are today as a society, especially in the United States and in many other countries, too. Uh, how we get to that point, well, I don't know. Maybe, uh, as we see in China now, that uh, there are surveillance systems that can recognize who you are when you're walking around in public, and not only will recognize who you are and where you are and what you're doing, but assign points as to how good a member of society you are. So we read about this and say, this is horrific. You, like, there's zero privacy anymore. If you're a bad person acting in public, you may not be able to, to go on a train anymore. You might lose your job. So the, the fear on that is then that society is now going to put a huge damper on your sense of personal freedom. Well, maybe something like that would happen in the future. You'd have thought police. You'd have, who knows what, some kind of strange control uh, set upon us by some nefarious telepathic society that does sound horrific. So we need to work through these kinds of fears. Uh, we need to get beyond the fears and, and figure out ways of preventing that from happening uh, but, and eventually end up with something in maybe the far future which would be the equivalent of a hive mind. So the hive mind 
is the notion that uh, it's like what a beehive is. Each individual bee is doing something. Uh, they might even have a sense of free will and, and personal sovereignty, but they're working together in a very coordinated way. Maybe that's the direction that humanity is taking, that we each feel like separate creatures. We have our own free will, but we are indeed, even now, working together to create civilizations. Well, maybe that becomes much, much more integrated. When it becomes integrated enough, you're able to do truly amazing things. Imagine that, for example, all of the money that's spent worldwide on military operations. Well, if that were simply tur turned off and reset onto things like health care, the world would be completely different overnight. So that's one example where we feel we can't do that because we don't trust other people. Well, if you get into a hive mind where suddenly the notion of privacy and secrecy and so on, those are no longer issues, the world would be extremely different and probably from a personal perspective much, much healthier in almost every way you can think of than it is today. So we're talking about major changes, and it would take a while to get there, but that's that's kind of the the, uh, the issues, I think, that come up. So often in the past, you know, I think about the uh, um, burning witches at the stake um, where there's there's such a, a stark emotional reaction to the unknown, and they might label it demonic or, you know, um, something like that. I think the work that you're doing where you're taking this... Um, really um, detached, uh, emotionless, um, analytical, um, plain and simple facts sort of um, perspective and just documenting it as a, uh, a natural phenomenon that's existed for a very long time would, would be a, a very helpful perspective to help people understand it without having an emotional motivation to it or an emotional posture to it. Yes. Yeah, I agree. Uh, so it's not that there it's purely analytical or has no emotional component to it because I'm very excited about it. I mean, I mean, that sound like I'm not going to shout about it, but it has motivated me to basically spend my professional career doing work which is extremely risky from a, a career perspective, but I just find it so fascinating that I'm I'm driven to continue to do it. So I think you're right that uh, a large amount of the fear can be reduced by simply letting people know that these are common experiences. We did a survey among the general population and also among the subset that are scientists and engineers. We asked them, of, of this list of 25 different kinds of psychic experiences, including telepathy and clairvoyance and so on, of, of these kinds of experiences, which of these have you had, have personally experienced, and then uh, have you uh, let us know if you've had at least one of these experiences? So the general public, 94% of the general public said yes, they had experienced at least one psychic type of experience, and on average, eight. Eight of 25. So this, I mean, this is this shows why movies and fiction that are revolving around themes of these phenomena are very successful. 
because people recognize it. They know about these things. So what about the subset of scientists and engineers? Well, that subset is usually thought to be uh, extremely skeptical to the point where they don't believe any of it. But the answer there was 93% of scientists and engineers had experienced at least one psychic-type phenomena, and on average, seven, seven of the 25. So we did a cut in the data. We said, well, maybe some of the things that we listed on our list was, uh, have you ever had a, a gut feeling or an intuition about something? And maybe that's not psychic. Maybe it's just something else, like forgotten knowledge or something. So we pulled out of our list of 25 only those kinds of experiences that would call, be called psychic, something that perception through space and time and psychokinesis and so on. And there we get a slightly less percentage, but still above 85% of scientists and engineers say, yeah, they have experienced these kinds of phenomena. So this is a huge majority of the population, and this is the United States. We get about the same responses everywhere in the world, which tells us that people do recognize this. Uh, their concern about their own experiences can be alleviated by simply recognizing that they're in the vast majority. We just don't talk about it very much in the open, but it's something that is, is, rel is normal, actually. With 80, 85 or 90 percent of people talking about this as their experience, not their belief, but what they've actually experienced, this is very, very common. And I found that just in talking to somebody about this and, and letting them know that what they're talking about is not doesn't mean they're crazy and it doesn't mean they're going psychotic. It's this is simply part of what it means to be a human being. Well, those are some pretty pronounced numbers. So why don't you put it in front of people the way they're used to looking at something, and that's on their phone. Make an app where um, perhaps people uh, predict the outcome of events, like who's going to win the World Cup or whatever, and and. Because the numbers, the percentages you were talking about in some of these conditions were pretty pronounced. And an app would be a way to bring it into the social stream. <laughs> I don't know, that was just a popcorn thought, but. Well, we do have an app. There's an iPhone app called PsyQ, P-S-I-Q. And I've had a, that was launched about a year ago. Uh, and I've had a website for 18 years now, called gotsci.org. So gotsci.org is a, a suite of six, I think six, six or seven uh, simple but valid tests for various kinds of psychic ability. We've collected uh, over these 18 years, and the, it's still, still active, uh, a half a billion or a quarter of a billion trials at this point, 250 million trials from about 300,000 people around the world. So there are there are ways of uh, testing oneself, and it's, it's fun. Some people use these, either the app or the online site, quite a bit. Uh, but it's true that while many people have had these experiences, mo in most cases they are spontaneous. These are not things that people can control. So while they can take the, the PsyQ app or the GotSci.org website, they may or may not do very well because the experiences that, that 
are most striking to somebody has something to do about their life, some high motivation thing like a crisis telepathy episode or a precognitive dream of something big, and they have no control of it over it. They know it's real because it happened to them, but it's much, much rarer to find somebody who actually does have control of these, these phenomena. It's maybe somewhere between 1 in 5,000 to 1 in 10,000 people have some degree of control. As that becomes mainstream, though, perhaps, do you think people talk themselves out of uh, their psychic abilities because yes. of perhaps a, a Western mind or whatnot? Yes. Occasionally what happens is somebody has a, a striking experience. It even could be transformative. They, they become a different person as a result. But they're too scared to tell anybody about it because it just seems so weird to them. And after a while, the impact of that experience begins to fade because they're not talking about it. They would, in some respects, rather that it just go away. And so eventually they revert back. And they say, well, either I don't remember it or I, I, I was mistaken or it was a coincidence or something like that. That does happen. In fact, I include a case like that in, in Real Magic uh, where a, a well-known skeptic whose whole career has been about, uh, to to write about how these kinds of experiences uh, don't exist, in fact, did have a very remarkable experience, which two years later he completely denied. So if you're motivated to not pay attention to your experience, you, sure enough, will not pay attention to it. It does happen. Huh. Well, um, it's... It seems like as more attention is put on this over time that the, perhaps the rate of understanding, the rate of exploring um, would be accelerated. There's so, um, as we give it our attention and intention, um, I, would, I would imagine that over the next decades it would be um, much more pronounced or more mainstream as as time goes by. The, the ability to communicate um, through email and, and radio shows and whatnot, when people are interested in these types of uh, topics, the information can really um, propagate much more easily as time goes by. Where mm -hmm. do you see, um, do you have any idea or, or sense or uh, psychic premonition of where um, this topic of, of magic is going to unfold in the next 5, and 10, 15 years? Well, uh, this topic culturally goes through cycles that, that last 20 to 30 years. And the cycles uh, in the 1960s and 70s, so-called psychedelic 60s, uh, this was much, much more popular. Uh, and it's largely because people were basically being blasted into inner space through the use of psychedelics. Uh, that, And then in the 1980s or about the 2000s, there was a, a down period where the big crackdown on psychedelics uh, basically took an entire generation out of the picture. But they didn't have these experiences, so they, they weren't interested in it. 
uh, we're coming back now to uh, now it is acceptable. Uh, it's still difficult, but acceptable in the academic world to study psychedelics. And, of course, people are talking about it with amazement for the same reason they did in the 60s and 70s. It, it opens a door into perception of reality in a different way. The other thing happening now, which was not so much the case in the 60s and 70s, was mainstreaming of meditation. Meditation now is paid by insurance for a lot of, uh, of health health companies. So meditation eventually opens up people. It's not quite as fast as a psychedelic, but it works. And so we're slowly seeing changes in, in culture that will allow people to be more open to these kinds of experiences. And that's very important because the only way that research takes place is through funding. There's no government funding for this kind of research. Zero. That means that all of it that takes place is due to private foundations and wealthy individuals who become donors. So there's, that severely limits uh, what and who who can study and what is studied. Uh, so as society begins to loosen up a little bit, maybe uh, the usual source of funding for research, which is government funding, might also begin to loosen up. And at that point, it is not the case that academics are not interested in these phenomena. They're not studying it because there's no money to do so. So if, if magically uh, the National Institutes of Health had a Department of Magic, I have no doubt at all that you will suddenly have tens of thousands of people studying magic. It's a matter of what culture wants to do. So will that happen in five years? Probably not. Could it happen in 20 years? Well, possibly. They won't call it magic. They'll call it something else. But it'll be funding to do research in this domain. Right. Well, an hour can go by pretty fast. I want to make sure our listeners uh, know about your books. Can you share with us your books and how we can get a hold of them? Well, the the book that came out this past April 2018 is Real Magic, and that can be bought at any any bookstore online, offline. Uh, it comes in a Kindle version and also an audiobook version. So the audiobook is actually selling better than the other two categories. And maybe one of the reasons is that I had the opportunity to select a professional voice reader to read the book. And I was uh, lucky enough to ask for the person who read the Dan Brown books, things like uh, The Lost Symbol and Angels and Demons, those kinds of, of fictional books. Well, that reader read my book. And if you get a professional voice artist reading a book, uh, they could read the phone book, and it, it would be something that, that would be fascinating. Right. And the, and I've got a lot of feedback from this. If people are listening to the book while they're driving or in other places where they don't have a chance to actually read it, and they find it just as fascinating as a fiction book, even though it's actually nonfiction. So... To learn more about uh, this book and the other books that I've written, all of which are in press, I mean, they're in print. You can buy it from Amazon or wherever. Uh, go either to realmagicbook.com or to my website, deanraden.org, and that's how you can find out more about this. Oh, and by the way, if somebody, had a, a, if somebody wanted to contact me and they go to deanraden.org, they'll see that they're, one of the tabs on that website uh, is a contact tab so you can send me an email from there.
Do you do um, uh, speaking? I mean, if 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 somebody wanted to contact you to speak at their events, or I'm I'm trying to think of modalities you have outside of your books. Uh, yeah, I I have a one of the tabs on my website is events, and I list all of the events that I do, whether it's a podcast or radio or television or presentation somewhere. Uh, I've done and do all of the above for well, for industry. Nice. For academia, for you, you name it, I've talked probably too much by now. No worries. You know, I well, I just I think what you're doing is is um, a very powerful work in in that the discipline that you have towards the subject. You have a very uh, scientific method where, I mean. Um, we had you on the show a while ago, and mm-hmm. I mean, you're sifting through folklore and mythology, you know, um, and and with such discipline, I think you're doing a, a wonderful, wonderful service in that you're so diligent and methodical. Um, I very much applaud you for. The work that you've done for decades now, really, I, I think your your contribution is going to um, be a very powerful component to really the revealing of, of the mechanics of consciousness of humanity. So I applaud you very much for that. Well, I, I thank you. That's very kind. And I want to thank you for being our guest on the show tonight. It's been such a pleasure having you. It's my pleasure to to talk to you. We've been talking with Dean Radin, and the topic tonight has been real magic. It I, I love these kind of conversations where um, the hidden aspect of our human demeanor is is revealed through. Um, conversations like this. I think every single one of us has a point of presence of an infinite stream of consciousness is is going to be how humanity comes around to new possibilities for a future. I want to thank you, the listener, for joining us tonight. It's always a pleasure bringing you shows like this. I'm your host, Les Jensen. Thanks for joining us tonight. Until next time. This has been a New Human Living radio broadcast. You can raise your own personal power with Personal Power Fundamentals Home Study Course at NewHumanLiving.com. Thanks for listening.